Daniel dreamed that he saw this great ram. So as was the case with animals elsewhere in scripture, the ram here is intended to symbolize something else. We have to start with that presupposition. Furthermore, it's intended to represent a nation. So the question to us is, which one? Do you believe that the Bible is trustworthy and reliable? In Daniel 8, the prophet foretold several events that would occur centuries later. And in today's study, we see that those prophecies were fulfilled right on schedule. This is one of the many reasons that we can be confident in God's Word. An English professor once said that the greatest way to open a story is the tried and true words, once upon a time. So that's where we're going to start. Once upon a time, there was a Greek king called Antiochus. Now, the first thing that you need to know about Antiochus is that he was mad. And I don't mean angry, I don't mean furious, although he probably was those things. What I mean is that he was a madman. Antiochus the madman. That was, in fact, his nickname. Antiochus Epimenes, meaning Antiochus the madman. Now, this madman would earn the title, would earn the nickname, because he would commit atrocities and abominations to have few matches throughout all of pagan or secular history. In the year 175 B.C., you have the Greek Empire. And the Greek Empire is still a dominant force at this time. And this man named Antiochus rose, rose in power in one area of the Greek kingdom. And he rose to power through a, a villainous web of murder and intrigue. Now, after he assumed power, after he rose in stature, after he did these things, he began to see himself almost immediately as a divine figure. Now, that was not unusual. If you remember Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar and others, they tended to see themselves in this light. They tended to see themselves as divine or divine-ish. Well, that was certainly the case of this guy, this madman Antiochus. Shortly after he assumed power, he appended the phrase epiphanies, epiphanies to his name. And that meant manifestation of God or God in the flesh. Antiochus, God in the flesh, which the Jews behind his back distorted. And they said Epimenes, which meant crazy, which meant madness. He said Epiphanes, they said Epimenes, it meant something different. Now, to demonstrate his uh, craziness, his self-styled divinity, Antiochus ordered that all the coins in the kingdom would be minted with a, a new coinage that bore his image. Now, that wasn't unusual, but upon the coin it said this, Theos, Epiphanes, which again means God in the flesh. Now, at that time in history, as these coins were being exchanged, the Greek empire was fragmented. It had gotten too big. During the days of Alexander the Great, it had just gotten too big. No one could control it. It was so large. And in order to consolidate support in his part of the Greek kingdom, in order to consolidate support there, Antiochus pursued a movement that's called Hellenization. Now, Hellenization was this idea that the Greeks had their own culture, and what they wanted to do was to stamp it or tattoo it upon any people groups that they conquered so that people groups would lose their own cultural distinctives and absorb or learn those of the Greeks. So Hellenization, it was the idea that whoever they would conquer would learn about Greek history and philosophy, and importantly, about the Greek gods, about the pantheon of gods. So that was something that really all the Greeks were doing, but Antiochus had a special love of this, Hellenization. And what's more, he had a special people in mind to endure it. See, Judea existed. You could say it was kind of a tributary state, maybe a vassal state at this time of the Greek kingdom. It was not too dissimilar to what you see in the time of Rome in the first century when Rome dominated Judea in that age. However, although Judea was under Antiochus' thumb, although it was under his thumb, Antiochus was not fully satisfied with that relationship. 
Because like all power-hungry warlords and tyrants of the past, his greatest fear was that the people would turn, that some other Pied Piper would come along and, and woo them away, or some other force, some other body, perhaps Rome itself, some other entity would take their loyalties and, and pull them aside and that they would turn upon him. So with that in mind, one of the things that Antioch saw as essential was to eliminate their cultural practices, their religious practices, anything that might possibly keep them from being loyal to him this guy who saw himself as God, he wanted to remove. So this Hellenization, that's what he pursued. Now, some Jews went along with it. You might remember in Scripture, you read about the Hellenists. Some Jews went along with this. They thought this sounded okay. And the biggest reason they thought it sounded okay was just the practical means of survival. Those folks who said, well, you know, what are our options here? This guy is pretty mean. This guy is pretty tough. In order to endure, they figured they would adopt the practices, even if they just did it publicly and in private, they still pursued their own faith or religion or what have you. They thought, you know, what's, what's the worst that can come? Some Jews did this. There was a priest at the time. His name was Joshua. You know what he did? He changed his name, or through Antioch's decree, his name was changed from Joshua to Jason. Again, taking a very Jewish name and making it more overtly Greek. So this was the process. This is what's happening. God's people were being remade in the image of a non-god, this guy Antiochus, the madman. Now, not everyone went along with that. Not everyone thought that this was a worthy sacrifice to make to kind of bend the knee to the Greek gods and Greek leadership. Not everyone went along with that. There were still a remnant. There were still traditionalists at this time who remained faithful to Jehovah and who held to the books of the law and they didn't care if it was Antiochus or if it had been Nebuchadnezzar before them. They were not going to have any part of this. Remember Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They were the type of folks who would never go along with these, with these decrees. Well, Antiochus, when the traditionalists arose against him, or even the fact they existed at all and would not bend the knee to his gods or follow his, his lead, he got angry, as all tyrants do when their decrees are not followed. This was not a guy who took no for an answer. And so he determined to deal with them determined to deal with God's people. And so he made a series of decrees, and the decrees dealt most overtly with the worship that you Jews were practicing in the temple. He said, uh-uh. He says, this is going to stop, or at the very least, we're going to change it. So what did he do? Well, he outlawed the sacrifices that had been done. He raided the Jewish temple. He burned the books of the law, and he set up an altar to the god, lowercase g, Zeus, in the temple. What an abomination this is. He set up an altar to the god Zeus, and guess what he sacrificed on it? Pigs. This is a slap in the face, not only to the Torah, to, to the book, but to the people's understanding of what faithfulness looked like and what unfaithfulness looked like. He did all manner of things. And anyone who wouldn't bend the knee to his gods and his practices, anyone who even pursued circumcision, which was the Old Testament sign of the covenant, they were put to death. Anyone who did not yield entirely, at least visually, publicly, was killed. Antiochus Epiphanes, this is one of the greatest villains, the greatest villains in Jewish history. To this day, you know what Hanukkah, you know what Hanukkah celebrates? Hanukkah celebrates to this day the time when Antiochus was dead and the temple was cleansed and restored during the time of the Maccabean Rebellion in, in uh, about 167. Hanukkah is a celebration of the time they got rid of that guy and got rid of all the things and the wickedness and the depravity that he had brought in. To this day, they're still celebrating getting rid of Antiochus and his changes to temple worship. Now, what does that have to do with today's text about the goat and the ram? Well, I'm glad you asked, because that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. If you would, let's return now to verses 1 through 4 of our text, and we'll work our way through the passage. Verses 1 through 4, we're going to see a vision that Daniel the prophet is going to have, a vision that's going to speak specifically to this guy in a few verses from now, Antiochus Epiphanes. Okay, verse 1. 
In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. And I saw the vision, and so it happened that while I was looking, I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. Note, this is not something he's seeing in Babylon. This is something, a vision he's having elsewhere. And I saw the vision that I was by the river Uli. Then I lifted my eyes, and I saw there standing beside the river was a ram, and it had two horns, and the horns were high. But one horn was higher than the other, and the higher one had come up last. So I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there anyone that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will, and he became great. All right. Very late in his life, the prophet Daniel had a vision, a vision in which he found himself in a foreign and strange land. Specifically, Daniel dreamed that he was in this place called Shushan or Susa. Now, why is that significant? Why don't we just blow on past that? Why is that significant? Well, Shushan was the capital of Medo-Persia. It was the capital of Medo-Persia. It was not a city in Babylon at which time or in which place Daniel then lived. It was a city. It was the capital of Medo-Persia. And it was Medo-Persia, not coincidentally, that was soon going to be conquering Babylon. So Daniel's vision landed him in the capital city of the empire that would soon be ruling the modern world. Now, in this vision where he's standing in Shushan, in Medo-Persia, Daniel dreamed that he saw this great ram. Now, animals, what did we talk about in previous chapters? You had beasts. Remember the four beasts came out of the water and they didn't signify Godzilla and Mothra and the like. They were signifying or they signified nations and kings that would arise in later days. When you come across beasts or animals, they typically represent something other than themselves. So you look at the nature of the beast and you determine symbolically something about that beast that applies to a particular nation or king to come. That's typically what's done throughout the Old Testament. It's certainly what we see in the book of Daniel. So as was the case with animals elsewhere in Scripture, the ram here is intended to symbolize something else. We have to start with that presupposition. Furthermore, it's intended to represent a nation. So the question to us is, which one? Which one did it represent? He sees the ram. He's in Medo-Persia, the capital city. What nation do you think it was? Well, if you guess Medo-Persia, you, you get a gold star. Medo-Persia was what he's seeing here in the ram, of which Shushan was the capital city. Now, Medo-Persia, it was made up of two separate groups, two separate peoples, the Medes and, and the Persians. But the Persians were the stronger. The Persians, you could say, were the taller horn. However, they had come up second. They had come up last. The Persians had come to prominence after the Medes, even though they were stronger than the Medes. When he pictures this ram, when he pictures this ram, this is what he's picturing with his two horns. He's picturing the Medes and the Persians in the exact order and strength in which they would appear. This is not an accident. So that's what we're seeing there in verse 3. Now, there was a 4th century historian named Marcellinus who said that, that the Persians, furthermore, that they often bore the head of a ram somewhere on their attire, perhaps even over, over their, their headwear. But they bore the head of the ram somewhere on their attire when they led their troops into battle to the north, the west, and the south. So what we're making the case in these first verses is that the ram is Medo-Persia. That's the case we're making history. Even secular historians tend to look at this and say, well, that seems to be the nation that is being referred to here. Okay, let's look at verses 5 through 7. And as I was considering, so he's looking at this ram, he's considering it and who it is. Suddenly, a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. That speaks to the speed of this goat. And the goat had a notable horn between its eyes. Horns mean something here. We'll talk about that in a moment. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I'd seen standing beside the river, and he ran at him with furious power. 
And I saw him confronting the ram, and he was moved with rage against him. He attacked the ram, and he broke his two horns. You have this goat, he's charging as fast as can be. He comes against the ram, the ram's horns break off. And there was no power in the ram to withstand the goat. But he cast him down to the ground, and he trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver him from his hand. All right. One minute in his dream, he pictures this ram. The ram is impressive and mighty and trampling other the nations before it. But then he sees in time a goat shows up. A goat shows up in the course of history. A goat challenges the ram and conquers the ram and tramples it underfoot. Now, if the ram had been a nation, then it makes some sense that the goat's a nation. So which nation would that be? Which nation are we talking about here? What national power would arise to challenge the Medo-Persians? Well, it might help us to think, well, which direction did the goat come from? I mean, if you just wanted to look at this through a clinical eye, you'd say, well, it says it came came from the West. Verse 5 says that this nation came from the West. So what nation, what nation came from the West to destroy the Medes and the Persians? Well, we believe that to be Greece, the Greek Empire. Again, even secular history shows this to be true. It was the Greeks who moved with great speed to conquer the Medes and the Persians. It was the Greeks who worshipped Pan. What kind of god is he? A goat god, which is significant here as well. Now, do you remember, who was the ruler of the Greek Empire at this time that did these things with such speed? Right. Alexander the Great. And as just a side note, if you look at this text in the ESV, notice how many times the word great is translated to identify this leader, this individual, this nation. Whatever the case is, Alexander the, the, the Greek was the leader, or excuse me, Alexander the Great, he was Greek, Alexander the Great was the leader of the Greek Empire at this time. He was born in about 356 B.C., and in incredibly short order, especially given his youth, he overthrew the entirety of the Persian Empire. To say he trampled it, that doesn't do it full justice. He stomped this empire that had previously been so strong into the ground. He took out the Persian Empire, which included Asia Minor, Persia, Egypt, and everything in between, including Israel. In any case, verse 5, I believe that Alexander the Great is typified or symbolized by the great horn that is between the eyes of the goat itself. And we'll demonstrate why in just a moment. But we believe in verse 5, this is a reference to Alexander the Great as this, this horn. So verses 5 through 7 say this goat would come in and would destroy the ram. All right, so you have the, 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 the ram is dead, the ram is crushed, you got the goat. Is that the way the story is going to end? Well, no. Let's look at verses 8 through 12. So therefore, the male goat grew very great. But when he became strong, and there's that word great again, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken. At the pinnacle of this nation's strength, the large horn was broken, which we believe to be a reference to Alexander the Great. And in its place, four notable ones came up. So four additional horns came up towards the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came a little horn. Remember in Daniel 7, the little horn was bad news? Well, it's bad news here as well. Out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land, the promised land. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the hosts and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even, this says this is an individual, the horn is a person, he even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth to the ground. He did all this, and he prospered. All right. So verse 8 
says that after the goat took out the ram, the ram is dead, the goat is strong, the goat continued to grow in strength. This goat that represents the Greek empire grew strong. There was a large horn between its eyes, and at the pinnacle of its strength, the horn is broken. If the horn is a reference to Alexander the Great, which I believe it is, then that's a reference to the fact that Alexander the Great, at the pinnacle of his strength, as a very young man, 33 years old, he died. That was the end of the story for Alexander the Great. He died of an illness at the relatively young age of 33. Remember, this is a prophecy we're reading, not history. You have to have that in your mind to appreciate this. This is a prophecy. There was no Alexander the Great at Daniel's time. None of this had happened at Daniel's time. Daniel's looking through the corridors of time, through the grace of God, through the Holy Spirit, and anticipating and writing down a prophecy of something that was yet to come. So what he is doing is here is he's anticipating this reign of the rule that would come up through Alexander the Great, who he didn't know by name at this time, but he knew there would be a strong individual, and that individual would be cut down in his power. And when he was cut down, when the horn was broken, four other horns would arise. And out of one of those horns, a little horn. A little horn. So it would appear that after Alexander the Great's death, that four kings, generals, leaders would arise, and that's just what history shows us. Upon the Greek empire's, or upon the, the, the breaking of this fourth horn, no one could rule this empire was so large through just the united force of their will, and so four generals took over four areas of the kingdom. The first was Cassander, the second was Lysimachus, the third was Seleucius, the fourth was Ptolemy. And that's what verse 8 is telling us, or suggesting, or anticipating, when it says that in the place of this great horn, four other horns would emerge. Now later on, in Daniel chapter 11, there's also going to be references to the same time frame once again. Daniel's going to look back to this as well. And he's going to refer to this time, and he's going to say, a mighty king would arise who would rule with dominion and do according to his will. This is Alexander the Great. And when he had arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and divided in the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity. You see, Alexander the Great, he was young. He didn't have many children, evidently. He didn't have anyone to pass the kingdom on to. So just as Daniel 11 suggests, the kingdom did not go to Alexander the Great's son. It went to these generals, to the four people we identified here. All right. So Alexander, the great horn, dies. His kingdom is divided into four pieces. Decades would pass. Time would go by. And these pieces, these four pieces of the kingdom would in turn be ruled by a succession of less significant kings or regents who continued to rule their section of the Greek empire and who continued the work of Hellenization. Remember as we talked about earlier, that was the idea that you would stamp your own culture, the Greek culture, upon the people groups that you had conquered. In verse 9, the text says that one of those leaders in one of these areas of the kingdom would come up who would be particularly bad, particularly bad news, a particularly wicked guy. And that's saying something. When Scripture says one guy is going to be particularly bad, watch out, because there's been a lot of villains in the book. So this is what it says about this bad egg that would come up. Out of one of the kingdoms, verse 9, I believe, one, out of one of the kingdoms came a little horn which grew exceedingly great. He exalted himself as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices, meaning the temple, were taken away, and the place of God's sanctuary was cast down. Do you remember the madman? The madman that we talked about at the outset of today's sermon? Do you remember the man that history knows as Antiochus Epiphanes? This is the guy. This is the guy. 
Verses 9 through 12, we read this. This new horn would arise, would exalt himself as divine, which is exactly what Antiochus did. And he would defile the temple and the sacrificial system. It was prophesied, anticipated that this would happen. A guy would come in. He'd be a bad egg, bad news. He would do these things. And across the course of history, even secular history, we look back and there was one guy who did it. Antiochus Epiphanes. Now we're going to read a bit more about him in a few moments, but let's look at verses 13 and 14 because they talk about how long his reign of terror would last. Verse 13, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? In other words, one of these holy ones is saying, How long could this last? How long is God going to abide Zeus hanging out in the temple? How long is he going to abide the sacrifices being removed? How long is he going to abide the abomination that Antiochus is going to bring into the temple, into the practices? And verse 14, they said to me, for 2,300 days, and then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. All right, how long will this continue? And the answer in verse 14 is 2,300 days. Now, there are times when... Days mean days. That could well mean 2,300 days, as it seems to straightforwardly read. But the original Hebrew can also be interpreted, properly interpreted, to refer to 2,300 mornings and evenings, which would actually correspond to the sacrifices. And in that case, if that's true, then what we're talking about is not 2,300. You're talking about roughly half of that, about 1,150 days, if this is a reference to the morning and evening sacrifices. I'm somewhat persuaded that it is. In either case, the main takeaway is that it would be for a limited time. It wasn't going to be forever. Okay, let's look at verses 15 through 17. And then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning. Again, Daniel didn't have all this figured out either. If you and I are kind of scratching our head and going, boy, what is all this? Daniel didn't know either. He was constantly asking questions. And all his visions, he's going up to angels saying, what's, what is this? What's the deal here? So in, in verse 15, then it happened that as Daniel had seen the vision, that suddenly there stood before me one having an appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. And so he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was afraid and I fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. All right. In verse 15, Daniel has seen this horrific vision. He still doesn't know what to make of it. At this point, the angel Gabriel, who you might remember from the New Testament context, is angel Gabriel is called to explain things to him. And Gabriel tells him straightforwardly, this refers to the time of the end. Now, what end? There's a lot of ends, so a lot of different things. What's being referred to here? What end is the angel speaking of? Well, we know that the bulk of today's reading deals specifically with the events in the first few centuries before the time of Christ. So there is some possibility, some truth, that what he's referring to as the end is to the end of this chain of events, the end of the sequence, the end of the abomination that was taking place. That may be true. And yet at the same time, everything we're seeing today also can perhaps rightly be understood as having practical application to the still yet future, to what has not happened even yet today, to truly the end. That may be the reference here. Personally, I think it's safe to say that when Gabriel's talking about the end, I believe it had a dual meaning. I believe it had a dual meaning. Now, Martin Luther came to a similar conclusion. Luther thought this was true as well. In fact, when Luther was writing his commentary or talking about this, he made this statement. He said, this chapter in Daniel refers to both Antiochus and to the Antichrist. So let's consider that. Let's consider that possibility now as we look at our final verses, verses 18 through 26. 
Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. You can just imagine all these seen or heard. He's overcome. Face to the ground. He touched me. I stood upright. And he said, look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation. For the appointed time, the end shall be. The ram which you saw, having two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. Now, earlier on, we made the case without addressing this explanation, but we made the case that it looked even without this explanation like that's what was being referenced, the Medes and the Persians. Well, here we get it straight from the, the horse's mouth, so to speak. The ram which you saw that had two horns, they're the kings of Media and Persia. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. So the rams, the Medes and Persians, the goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that's between its eyes is this first king. As for the broken horn and the four that stood in its place, four kingdoms shall rise out of that nation, but not with its power. So what he's saying is what we've already talked about, that the Greeks would rise, they destroy the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks would grow strong, and then the horn would be broken, and then four kingdoms that were not as great, not as powerful, would arise out from them. And the large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. As for the broken horn and the four that stood in its place, four kingdoms shall rise out of that nation, but not with its power. And in the latter time of their kingdom... When the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features who understand sinister schemes. This is Antiochus. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Through his cunning. Who does this remind us of? This is a reminder of the snake. The cunning. The snake's more cunning than all the beasts of the field. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He'll destroy fearfully. He shall prosper and thrive. He'll destroy the mighty, also the holy people. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule, and he shall exalt himself in his heart. That was the sin of Satan himself. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even arise against the prince of princes. It's capital P if you're in the New King James here. But he shall be broken without human means. This signifies that he would die, but not in battle. And the vision of the evenings and mornings which was told is true. Therefore, seal up this vision because it refers to many days in the future. All right. In verses 18 through 22, everything that we've already talked about is clarified for us by an angel himself. Not by Calvin or Luther or some theologian from far away, but by an angel himself. And he says that this refers to the kingdoms of the Medes and Persians who would be conquered by the Greeks. Now that in of itself is fascinating because if you're Daniel in Babylon, right? Babylon's still the all-powerful entity at that point. Remember Belshazzar before Babylon fell? He thought it would never fall. Nebuchadnezzar thought it would never fall. Daniel's still in Babylon at the height of its power. In his mind, who are the Greeks? What's the Greek empire? These are references to things spelled out by angels that Daniel probably had to scratch his head because there was no common frame of reference in his time for this. He sort of knew the Medes and Persians. The Greek Empire would have been a foreign concept to him. Not that he was unfamiliar with the lay of the land over there, but the idea of this Greek Empire being what it ultimately was, this would have been totally foreign to him, which is part of the reason that the critics of Daniel say it must have been written later. They can't abide by the idea that he had any idea what was going to come before him, before it would take place. So in any case, verse 23 says that out of this Greek empire, a king shall arise who understands sinister schemes. And through his cunning, he'll cause deceit to prosper under his rule, and he'll destroy many. Who is this guy? This is the question I'm sure Daniel had. It's the question people had up until that time. And looking back through the retrospective history, we can see that the individual is Antiochus Epiphanes, the madman. Now, in one sense, we're talking about a real guy. 
flesh and blood. This was a real dude, a real wicked, depraved, bad egg, a historical figure. He was a legitimate monster. He was a tyrant. And in his time, history shows, non-Christian authors like Josephus wrote that this guy really did desecrate everything about temple worship. He did everything that was anticipated in the book of Daniel. He would do all these centuries later. He did this. He destroyed the, the temple worship. He stained and defiled everything he could. He brought in the statue of, of Zeus. He slaughtered the pigs on the altar. He did all this nasty, wicked stuff. He burned the books of the law. His depravity knew no ends. However, it would only be for a short season. It would only be for a short season, for 2,300 days, depending on how you calculate those days. And when the time was complete, he would be broken, as verse 25 says. Specifically, Antiochus Epiphanes died of what is claimed to be, by historians, a particularly painful bowel disease took Antiochus down in the year 164 B.C. And it would seem that that is the end of Daniel's prophecy. So that would seem to be the end of the prophecy if we were just to leave it there. However, there seems to be, in the angel's words, an application to the future yet to come, to the future that may be yet before us. So close this morning, let me mention some thoughts on what that application might be as we look ahead. As we said last week, God has routinely used certain historical individuals to point forward to later individuals and what they would do. I'll give you an example. You have Moses. Moses was the mediator of the Old Covenant. Moses delivered his people from bondage. Who did Moses, as a person and his work, who did he point forward to? Right, to Jesus, to Christ. He pointed forward to Christ. In his person, in his work, what he did, how he even went about it, he looked forward and anticipated someone greater than he who was yet to come down the road. There's other examples, for lack of time, we won't get into them, but there's other examples of this, of where you have individuals in times past who through their personal work looked forward to someone yet to come. I believe, and most theologians and scholars share this view, that's no different with Antiochus Epiphanes. This guy was a monster, a legitimate monster. He killed, he slaughtered, he destroyed temple worship, he defiled, he blasphemed. This was a wicked, depraved man. And yet, it is reasonable to conclude that he was just a shadow, a type of some figure yet to come. Some figure yet to come. Over the centuries, many antichrists have arisen. And that's not just conjecture. In 1 John 2, we read this. You have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. There have been many shadows and types. You can look at the 20th century and find a number of individuals whose work and wickedness seems to point forward to the work and wickedness of someone yet to come, the man of sin that we see elsewhere in Scripture. Again, I share Luther's view and the view of many Reformers that Antiochus was a type of Antichrist. If that's true, then that's a scary proposition. Because what he did was plenty wicked. And if he was just a shadow of what he had to come, then that's, that's a scary prospect. It suggests that the future may have a dark season still out on the horizon. Depending on, on how you work through your eschatology, you might come to different conclusions. But I believe that's a reasonable one. With that said, do you remember the, the repeated emphasis of the angels when they talked to, to Daniel? Do you remember the repeated emphasis of the book of Daniel? The repeated emphasis is this. God wins. Beasts will arise. Out of the sea of humanity, beasts will arise. And they'll be terrible and nasty and they'll trample and destroy and do all manner of things. And yet they will fall. Every beast will fall. Every beast has fallen. One empire has been eaten and devoured by another empire on through. That is the way history has gone. And yet, though those kingdoms have fallen, the kingdom of God remains. The kingdom of God is more strong and it permeates more parts of the globe than it ever has before. That is not true of Babylon. That is not true of Greece or Rome or any kingdom of man. It is true solely of the kingdom of God. 
For a short and a very numbered season, evil reigns. For a short and numbered season, Antiochus reigned and ruled, but that season's over, and he is in judgment. For a short and numbered season, beastly nations, like the Medes and the Persians and Babylon and Greece and Rome, they rule the world, but now their time is over. For a short and numbered season, some hardships or persecution may still yet be in humanity's future. But in the end, no matter how numerous they may be, how bad they may be. No matter how many nations or rulers might arise against their creator, even if the whole world should bring a battering ram against God's door, they will not budge the gate of heaven one inch. They will not budge the gates of heaven one inch. The book of Daniel repeatedly drives us to that point. Every time Nebuchadnezzar tried to impress the will of man upon Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they stood tall, they stood firm, and ultimately it was not they who were broken, it was Nebuchadnezzar. The book of Daniel repeatedly demonstrates that. The book of Daniel repeatedly tells us it's God who reigns over the kingdoms of men. It's God who reigns over the present, the past, and yet the future to come. It's God alone who rules, and in time, the whole world will know it. In time, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is our Lord and King, our Savior. Let's pray. In today's study, we've gone verse by verse through Scripture. If this sort of expositional preaching is what you're looking for, then please subscribe to this podcast and check back tomorrow for another verse-by-verse study of God's Word.